The family of a local teenager says she never would have left home without calling. It's praying for the best. I want my daughter home, man. And if she can't come home, I just want to know where she's at. These posters around the towns of Livermore and Jay beg anyone with information to come forward. Posters that Richard puts up every spring, never losing hope. An arrest in a nearly four-decade-old cold case. Thanks to cutting-edge DNA technology, the arrest happening exactly 39 years to the day. When Parabon Nanolabs used that sample to create 3D models of the suspected killer's face. It's heartbreaking. We miss her, and we're going to find her. We're going to keep looking until we do. It's like a never-ending nightmare. It doesn't end. It keeps returning and coming back. What if I told you a camp is engulfed in flames, and when firefighters arrive on the scene, they notice a man running into the woods, and gas cans are found nearby? What if I said it took six days before anyone realized there was a body inside the charred remains? What if I told you that despite several people coming forward with information about who murdered the man inside the camp, almost nothing was done? What if I said that one mother has spent almost four decades trying to find justice for her son? And she is still not giving up. Welcome back to Locating the Lost, Season 1, Episode 7. I'm Travis. I'm Jeff. And tonight we're joined by Leola Cochran, mother of Michael Cochran, who was murdered inside that camp in Dedham, Maine. Struck in the head, and the building set ablaze around him. She has been battling Maine's legal system for years to find justice. So, Leola, can you... Introduce yourself and then tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Loyola Cochran Lee. Married very young, had three children. Michael was my youngest. He was my baby for 15 years until Sean was born in 1971. Michael was born in October 4th, 1956. If you could give us a little background on Michael. Um... Tell us about him, what kind of kid he was, and, and your some okay. of your memories of him. Okay, I had three children, as I said. Derry, Oldest, and Coralie. They did well in school, got good ranks. But Mike uh, had a hard time in school. I think it was fourth grade that he, uh, he repeated the grade. Mm-hmm. But they didn't seemed to help. He, uh, we left Caribou in 1969. He was 13 that fall. He started school in Eddington. Uh, he was in seventh grade. They called us from the school to come for a meeting that they suspected he had marijuana. That was the beginning of of the thing with, uh, I guess, with him starting with with drugs. Mm-hmm. And that was, in, that was in seventh grade, you said? Yes. Oh, wow. That was in seventh grade. I don't know, I have said if we hadn't left home, but I think regardless. But for me, I had never thought about the children ever been in drugs. I knew there was alcohol and it was considered a drug, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, as far as thinking about the children being in drugs, uh, back in 1969, I guess there were drugs around, but I wasn't aware of it. And. He did go through school, graduated in 1971 uh, from Eddington Holbrook School, I called it. And um, he did start high school, but he didn't stay long. He was old enough then that he could call it quits. Yeah. Then he started hitchhiking the highways. You never knew when he was leaving, or you never knew when he'd be back. 
Uh, he was picked up in Texas one time, and he made it to California and brought back a cover off a phone book folded in his pocket. <laughs> wow. Now, how uh, old was he at this time? He might have been 16, 17. Wow. Wow. He uh, called me one time. I think he was in California and said uh, he was on his. He'd call and say where he was and say, I'm coming home. And I had a map and I traced his journey back. And uh, he said he would get in bread lines and he would sleep in his sleeping bag under overpasses at night. Oh, wow. He traveled. That must have had you pretty concerned, huh? Thinking about your son out like that. Yeah, that 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 was a hard one until I lost him forever. Yeah. But uh, that was the way he went through his teens. So then he, a little older, was in an apartment in Brewer with uh, his girlfriend and a couple other people. When the police came in with a warrant and they found two pounds of marijuana and some pills. Now, did you know why they had a warrant? The only thing I could think is they must have suspected something. But there was uh, four of them arrested. One was released and the girlfriend was released. And he and another uh, man were indicted. And uh, that was in November of 1980. Mm -hmm. He went to court on December 3, 1980. And he was sentenced to six years in prison. Oh, wow. Yeah. What did you think? What did you think when you heard that? Well, when I heard that, there was something else going on at the time that took up my mind at that time because when they sentenced him, uh, I'm not condoning Michael when I say that was his first drug arrest in the apartment in Brewer. But uh, I came home, he went to court uh, with his girlfriend. He came home, uh, I came home and she was there and she said Michael had run from the courthouse, which was nothing unusual for Michael. He'd been on the run all (laughs) through his teens. So he was kind of a free spirit, huh? Well, I don't know if you call a, a free spirit. He wrote to a girlfriend in Caribou, and the letter never was sent. I found it after he was gone, and he told her that I'm looking for something. If I ever find it, I'll sure as hell tell you. Oh, yeah. So he, he was mixed up. Uh, I I think back to his school days, there was no special ed at that time. I think if he, and I, I, I think about it that I myself didn't recognize it the way I should have. That he needed more help than he, he got. Yeah. I think it's kind of why he turned like he did to drugs. He denied it. He never would admit it until it was after he was indicted for that drug charge. He was staying home at the time. He'd moved all his things home in the garage. And he come in, I didn't sleep well, and I was up to go to his room to get something. And when he came from his room, I was in the kitchen, and he kind of leaned in the back of a chair. And he said, you know, Mom, I'm addicted to cocaine, and I hate my life. Oh, I went wow. to tell, yeah, I went to tell him Michael there would be help when he said, "People in the car, I've got to go." So it was a sad story, 
even before he lost his life. What What is your reaction when your child tells you that they're addicted to cocaine? I can't even imagine. No, you can't. You You know, it's hard to explain the the desperation and the, uh, what you could do to help because he always denied that he ever ever touched drugs. I knew they'd called from the school but between that time and seventh grade until he was 23, 24 years old before he said that to me. Yeah. But I'm from, sorry, go ahead. Yes, from uh, when he ran from the courthouse. There was a, that was the 3rd of December. I knew not at all where he was. I was, my brother and his wife and Caribou had asked us to come there. So we took Shawnee, he was nine years old and we went. So while we were there, it was Christmas time and people were calling back and forth and my sister in mass did say to me, Leola, Michael's here. So that that's, was the he, 20- I'm sorry, so he ran away to Massachusetts to your sister's house? Yes. He'd been other places from what I understand before he went there. How long did it take them to finally catch up to him? Or did they ever catch up to him? No. They didn't. That was the 24th. That was three weeks. I had no idea where he was. And I Uh feared they would, because when he ran, the guy, the sheriff that was there with him, and he had used a phone to call his father, he said, for bail. Mm -hmm. Uh, He came out from the court office where he used the phone and went by the sheriff and he heard the sheriff yell stop Michael or I'll shoot he unsnapped his revolver but he never fired oh wow I've thought times it would have been much uh, I don't know how to say it it would have been a, a a less cruel death than what he suffered. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. a less, less cruel life for you. At least you would have known the whole story and what happened. It would have been swifting over rather than for what happened being taken out of his bed and confronted as someone that had turned sergeant in and shot gas poured on him while he was still breathing. So, can we talk about what we know about happened uh, sure. that night w- with him? Yes. Jeff and I were talking about this earlier, and uh, there was a fire in Bangor, right? That same night? Uh, well, it no, it was before 12 o'clock in Bangor, around 9 o'clock on the 17th. That, that was, was out. That, was, <laughs> that fire was extinguished by the time the one happened where Mike was. I had a hard time finding out what happened with Michael. Mm-hmm. I was I was up home, up, up, caribou, I called it home. And Mike's girlfriend had tried to contact me. And she wasn't able to, so she called my sister in Massachusetts. And she told her, which I didn't find out till a month later, that three men went to the cottage and struck Michael unconscious and then set the fire. I have that record from a um, fire inspector. The state police talked to them. They was investigating the fire. But didn't she say, didn't she tell them that she don't remember what happened that night and she wasn't there when anything happened? But from, uh, I got the call, it was a morning. The only time that the state police came, they went to Mike's father's place of employment and said they had found a body in the cottage and they suspected it was Mike and they wanted dental records. Then Daryl called me where I was in Caribou to come home that 
they found Michael in a body and they suspect in a cottage uh, that burned six days previous. I came home and I look back now and think if only I had known some of the things I know today, I wouldn't have done certain things. I wouldn't have given them the uh, dental records. They never came back. Oh, you never got them back? I got the uh, I got Michael's jawbones back 21 years after he was murdered. They still were. Wow. The they were still at the medical examiner's office. But uh, the state police never came. Schumann went to ask for the dental records and never came back. So. My mother was with me and wanted to go to Carol when we went up and my sister-in-law told me. I said, I'm reading things in the Bangor Daily about that fire, about the arson, and I am confused about just three hours or so before the fire, there was a drug sting. And the guy mm-hmm. that was in that cottage with Mike was Percy Sargent, and he was arrested there. Right. Along with another guy by the name of Cody. And then I got another paper, and the next night, the 19th, Cody was arrested again in another sting up in Aroostook County. Jeez. And I began to wonder what, you know, uh, how could that man be arrested here? and travel back to Prescott Island area the next night and get arrested, get arrested with again the, with the same uh, Clark from Bangor and other men that was on the same bus where uh, Percy. So I said to my sister-in-law, I, I, I am confused about this being an accident. I was told it was an accident. Daryl's worked with a guy that was, uh, he, he worked at Clark and Mitchell Funeral Home part-time. Mm-hmm. And he was the one that gave Daryl the information. That's where we were getting our information was from, uh, from this man. And he said that they set the fire. They were after David Dupre, who co-owned the cottage and they had a grudge against him and they didn't know michael was there and he didn't make it out wow so this is the way it went it was an accident so that was the original story they told you too that was the original story that went around um, my oldest son Derry, friends talking they were after david dupre and didn't know mike was there that was the story that was coming i think from the police so when and the that- I'm sorry. When the uh, fire department got there for the fire, you think it called as the structure fire, they roll up. No, what did they see? They saw two gas cans and a man fleeing. So to me, not being a firefighter or a fire investigator, that tells me it's some sort of arson. Why would someone be running through the woods and not running at the fire department or the firefighters? Right, right. They like, knew- hey, over here, I need yeah. help. They knew it was an arson. Right. But when she told me, my sister-in-law told me, she said, Loyola, Michael was murdered. Well, she shocked me. I said, how would you know that? I mean, you. she lives, uh, what is it, three hours back mm-hmm. to Caribou from Bangor? How would she know that? Uh, she said that Linda, Mike's girlfriend, called the night she couldn't find me and told them. The three men went to that cottage and struck Michael unconscious and killed him. Did she give any names that night? No. Not that I know of. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that I got from my sister-in-law. So it's interesting that she said that they struck him because um, wasn't it found out that he had actually died of a gunshot wound? Well... Yes, but it is in the insurance uh, adjuster's report from the state police that they believed he was struck unconscious before they set the fire. It verifies what 
Linda was told. Okay. Mm. And but now the yes. the to me the weird weirdest part about all of this or the most ridiculous part is the fact that it took six days before they found your son's body. Right. So they and obviously not being a firefighter, uh, why wouldn't they assume that there's an individual in that structure, right? Mm -hmm. Like usually if there's a fire, a human is involved. Why would you not go mm -hmm. in and, and look around at least a little bit, look mm -hmm. under his stuff, right? Well, you see a man running away, you see gas cans, there was one man ran from it, you think. But Wilbur Ricker, the fire inspector, that was his, he told me way back that that was his jurisdiction. He was pulled off and sent to Bangor. That fire was extinguished in Bangor when he was sent there. So he couldn't get back there for six days because he had to take care of the fire in Bangor. So and was, I wonder, was Bangor part of his district too or no? No, no. And I wonder why Bangor didn't have inspectors there that they'd have to pull him off. Right. Uh, the one down in Denham. Big city of Bangor. They had no one to come take a look at it. Well, well, on top of that, it, what, what I also find confusing is, is maybe it's just not part of their training, but why the firefighters there wouldn't also, like, are they not allowed to go in and, and look just to make sure that no one's there? Like, I don't think you need I, an inspector to try and save a life, you know? I don't know. Old Ricker was at work 42 years for the fire uh, department. Mm -hmm. He was a uh, uh, marshal's office. So he was experienced. He knew, but uh, in Heron's, uh, in the newspaper on the 25th, when the story came out in the, uh, in the Bangor Daily News, uh, Heron made the statement that if they had checked the fire like they do in a normal fire, mm, right. they would have found him. But I don't know what they mean by uh, a normal fire. Right. What, what prevented them from checking this one, right? Like, what, right. what's the difference between that and this? I, I mean, a structure is a structure. It was clearly a place where right. someone was inhabiting or could be inhabiting. Like, that, number one, to me, says we need to make sure there's no one still in there, you know? And, um, in 1985, February 12, 1985, Paul Pollard was going to college in Massachusetts. Detective Schumann took a statement from him, I have it. He said that during the six days that Michael lay there, he and Percy Sargent and Lionel Cormier drove back to the scene and they wondered why the cops hadn't found the body yet. Then further down in, in his uh, statement to Schumann, he says that one day they went back there and kicked around in the rubble trying to uncover the body. And he told that to Schumann. Wow. Nothing was nothing was ever done about anything like that. I have so, the statement that was so given to they, Schumann. They they knew the body was there. Why else would they like they went back to make sure, right? And they right. How would you know that there was going to be a body there unless you were there when it was put there? Well, when my, when Ricker found Michael's body on the twenty fourth. He had sent Jameson down to Heron's uh, residence, which was right there at the lake. He was down back working when he heard a car coming. He told Jameson to go to Heron's phone. He didn't want to go on the radio so they wouldn't have the news there. Mm -hmm. So he heard a car coming and it sounded noisier than his. So he hid behind the little garage that they saved. And Percy Sargent and Lionel Cormier got out and walked up to the scene. And when he come up from behind where he was, down behind the little garage, he said he had his uniform on. And he said they, they knew who he was. And he said they looked like two deer being caught under a jack lantern. <laughs> he asked their names, they gave their names, and he said, I gave it to the detectives and told them they need to be looked at. Percy Sargent and Lionel Cormier were never interviewed.
That's that's unbelievable. Two oh, guys there's so much up. to it. So much to it that's unbelievable. When I went, uh, I was in Caribou. My sister-in-law told me I come home and I went to con I contacted the main state police. I was in March, and the fir that first detective I met was Pinkham. He told me that Percy Sargent sent a call to have Mike taken care of. I've got the statement, and it's right in, and it tells it right in it. I, the guy's name that was in the county jail and overheard Percy Sargent say, I believe Michael Cochran set me up, and I just sent the call out to have him taken care of. He told me that, and then he told me Lionel Cormier set the fire. So he said if he had any more information, uh, you know, uh, he would he would get back to me. Well, I didn't hear from him. So I contacted him again, and I, he had me come to the DA's office in Bangor for the uh, interview. And he had Detective Schumann there with him. It was the first time I met him. And they said that they didn't think Mike's case would ever be solved because no one would talk. So I turned to Pinkham and I said, what you, what you told me, uh, that Lionel Cornier set the fire and Percy Sargent sent the call. He said, I didn't tell you that. Wow. So, and then... So Cormier... You know, I've, I've read a little bit about him and his background and things that he went to prison for. Yes. He, he sounds like a badass, but he was working for a sergeant? Like, he he took care of Michael to help sergeant out? Well, what it was, there was armed robberies going on. That was uh, Cormier's way of making a living, was robbing drug dealers. Uh, armed. He, they had, in November of 1980, they had armed robbed Charlie Dolan and got uh, $20,000. Wow. Then they had it planned for a second robbery. And when Michael uh, ran, he ended up with... I don't know why he would end up with such characters, but he did, and and trying to stay hid, I guess. So while Michael was there, I've got the tape of Percy Sargent talking to his brother Richard Sargent, that they talked to Michael while he was there about the Iron Roberts, and Michael told Percy, I want nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. They were scared that he was going to, uh, they thought he ratted on Percy that night on the drug scene, and they were scared if he did, he was going to talk about their armed robberies. Mm -hmm. They killed Michael on the 18th, and they did their second armed robbery of Dolan on the 3rd of March. No, it wasn't the 3rd of March, it was later than that. It was later than the third. I'm not sure right now exactly. It might have been almost a month later that they were, mm -hmm. they cut Charlie, they tied Charlie Dolan up and they, uh, Cormier cut his ear off. He kicked him in the face and he broke his ribs and he broke bones in his face. Jeez. I've always said that if they had taken care of them when they killed Michael, they wouldn't have been able. They wouldn't have been able to do what they what they did to Charlie Dolan or anyone else. Right, right. There's, I'm sure there's others that we don't know about. Yeah. The guy sounds pretty brutal. But you know, I brought lawsuit against Paul Pollard. No, the I didn't know that. Would, pardon? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, the state wouldn't look at him. I brought uh, $30,000 on board against my home to bring him back and take it to court. Detective Schumann showed up in federal court to testify for him. And before 11 days before we went to court, the 
that the attorney general's office hired my attorney. They hired your attorney? Yep. He walked out on me and went to work with the attorney. So you were left without an attorney? Well, there was another attorney from that firm that uh, took over the case, but he had not gone through all the depositions with me. He was not familiar with the case. Right. Just all that everything that you had gone through with that attorney about this just gone yeah yes that seems a little odd yes i'd say more than a little oh there was things that happened it's like the um conversations between lionel cormier and percy Sargent that's on my website i told schumann i had those he said no one would talk and when I told him about them, I think another detective did get them from Richard Sargent, but he told me that we doctored the, the tapes. And then I got a letter from Percy Sargent from Thomaston Prison telling me that Cormier and Paul Pollard killed Michael. And when I told Schumann, he said, how do I know he wrote that? So no matter what you got for information or what you did, it was uh, never... It wasn't good enough for him, right? Never good enough. Nothing was ever good enough. It have a signed confession. Well, I can't believe that he acted. That's actually his signature. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I had the envelope, like I said, with the return address on it. Yeah. How frustrating is it that you have to do five times the work than the work they're put, or the effort that they're putting in? I did everything right. I did everything I could. I took a course and I got my certificate for paralegal to file uh, documents in in court. I started the lawsuit on my own. Everything that I could think of to do and I live with the anger towards the state of Maine because they would not investigate Michael's death. They justly arrested so. pardon? I just said justly so, I would I would say. They arrested three men for Michael's murder. There was three men that Michael didn't know. They didn't know each other. And they took the uh, the information from a woman that was in the county jail it was a drug addict and was in there for theft and uh, about six months she held with the story and then she finally said it was in the Bangor Daily I still have all the newspapers that Schumann fed her the story that she gave to the grand jury wow wow I mean I feel like we're doing that a lot wow wow but <laughs> yeah I mean everything is just so absurd It is. It truly is. I know that I wrote the book on the years of what I've, what I've gone through, what I did go through uh, with the state of Maine uh, in Augusta, traveling so many times, trying, begging. And uh, when I talk about Michael's case, not so much now, I get speeded and get loud and I've had some of them at the AG's office don't you yell at me <laughs> yeah I, I think you deserve to do a little yelling right but, no so that book is a main murder one mother's fight for justice and I That's just correct. post that on our Facebook page hopefully you get yes. some people that are interested in Michael's story and want to purchase that you also um you're part of parents of murdered children correct I was you and are. that's another story. Oh. They hired a victim advocate at the AG's office, and uh, I allowed her to become involved in our uh, parents' murdered children, and she took it over. Oh, wow. Now, is that something you had started, or did you co-found I it? I brought the first parents. Exactly. I brought the first parents murdered children into Maine. We first started the organization Had Enough, my son and I. And we had we had quite a few people involved. Uh, uh, Rosalie, 
uh, forget her last name now, from Cherry Field would come down. We had from all different places. We had a good group going. Mm -hmm. And I got involved in Parents of Murdered Children. Some of them really didn't want to uh, get involved. Parents of Murdered Children is, uh, they don't do uh, like court or anything like that. It's it's more oh. a grief. Uh, like a support group sort of thing? It's, it's a support group. It goes maybe a little further than that. But mm -hmm. as far as anything with the AG's office, they would not be involved in that. And that, uh, we had... Uh, some things had been written in the Bangor Daily about our group and how we were uh, complaining about there being so many unsolved homicides in Maine and all. And I think that's the reason why they, uh, uh, the uh, director came up to the Bangor area and had a meeting and they announced in certain terms with Paula Baker who was the victim advocate they wanted me out of parents of murdered children mm. wow <clears throat> um, there, there was uh, something I saw that the, there was a new officer that had taken over Absolutely. Um, some of the cold cases and yes. They had stated that they had almost nothing about your son's case? Well, I don't know. The, the only thing is there was a, a new detective come on Mike's case, Gerald Coleman. And I have all the respect in the world for Gerald Coleman. Mm -hmm. uh, my oldest son called me one day. That was in 2000, 2001, and said, Mom, there's a new detective on Mike's case. I said, I want nothing to do with the main state police. I don't want to talk to him. I don't want nothing to do with him. I've had enough of him. But eventually I did relent and uh, he came to my house, the first detective that ever came to my house. And he came first to ask if he could copy the information I had because there was nothing in Michael's file at the AG's office. Wow. And I had the gas cans. So frustrating. Uh, Ricker had had the gas cans until we did his deposition in 1990, and then I had them for 10 years. The police never picked them up. Bob Coleman oh, my asked. Word. He, yeah, Coleman asked if he could have them. I have the receipt he gave me when I gave them to him, and Coleman did have. Uh, he began investigating Cormier when he took on Mike's case. And he did, uh, through his investigation, Cormier was arrested for armed robberies and imprisoned for, well, I think close to 20 years. He went uh, in 1986, and I think that in two, Coleman was on the case a while before Cormier was released from prison. Mm -hmm. And then he went right back to armed robberies again. Mm -hmm. And through Jeez. investigating Michael's death, he he had, uh, uh, Cormier was arrested. And he got, I think, 37 years in prison, but he had uh, kidney problems on dialysis. And he died there in 2009. I was in court during, uh, in Portland during the Coleman came home and gave me the time to be there. It was for days that we went and then when he was sentenced. And during that hearing in Portland, it came out that he had bragged about killing Michael. Oh, geez. Yeah. Did, now, how did you feel when, when Cormier got convicted did you feel like there was a little bit of justice in there for you or i i did uh, i'm thankful to uh he knew why i was there he would turn around once in a while and look back at the clock on the wall and then he'd look at me yeah uh, but there was a hit richard sergeant and uh, cormier talking 
he was in jail in Penobscot County and he was talking to Richard and he said, you know, it was in the paper the other day. He said, five year anniversary of Cochran's death. And then he said something nasty. Uh, and then he said, but uh, it's his mother. She's still on the trail. Wow. Yeah. And still to this day. Well, he died there. Right, right. But I mean, in general, you're you're still you're still yeah. trying to find the answers. Detective Coleman told me that if he had had the case on day one, he would have solved it because he knew that Lionel Cormier, Percy Sargent, and Michael and uh, Paul Pollard killed Michael. Yeah. So, but so many know, of these cases we cover, that's what they say is they're easily solvable and they should have been solved. It just seems like yeah. so many missteps. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how many of these, uh, of those three are still alive? Cormier has obviously passed. Didn't one of the other ones pass as well? No, Paul Pollard's living in California. I've got his website. I think Michael that works at, um, the main cold case alliance what's it i can't pronounce his last name b-a-l-l-i-g-i-a-n something uh he found the site where he is i've got pictures of him and his uh, on his facebook and then percy sergeant lives in florida all right so there are still two of them out there that could answer to this Oh, absolutely. There are. But I don't think they'll... uh, Bill Stokes, uh, the deputy AG, uh, told me that as much as saying that they can't do anything about the case, they lost too much in the beginning. It It wasn't considered a homicide in the beginning. Right. Well, it probably would have been if... It hadn't taken six days to get there. Right. I don't think or, it would have been even I then. I don't no. think Pinkelman Schumann. I, uh, there were, something went wrong the night, uh, the, the drug thing. Yeah. I believe because uh, I've got other uh, documents of Schumann uh, trying to put, when the three men that they arrested for my, indicted for Mike's murder when they were in the county jail. Uh, Schumann said to Richard Sargent, think this other girl's name, that uh, turned him in, that's what he's insinuating, to take it off the one that did turn him in. What? Well, yeah, I guess I don't understand you, that. Can you repeat that? I'd... Yes. When the three men were arrested, they were done with the interview with Richard Sargent. He said, you're going into the jail now to think about, uh, I'll say it, I'm not saying it exactly how it is written, but think about this certain woman, this girl, turned him in. And it wasn't her that turned him in. Schumann was doing that to not let him know who had turned him in. Right. He was putting it on someone that was not involved or guilty of what Schumann was saying to Richard Sargent. So in your opinion, after everything you've researched and read and and your involvement, do you think that there was some sort of maybe police involvement with the drug dealings that helped cover this up? I believe that the night that they arrested the three men, one of them was working with the police and Percy didn't know it. Cody was arrested with Percy that night. He came down with the, the DEA from Aroostook County and he was, he was, he has a drug record, a long one. Percy knew him as a longtime drug dealer, mm-hmm. but he was working with the police. and. I believe that one of them said something. I think they knew where Michael was. I have reason to believe it. Because they went there after the drug sting. They, right. they, were, they were seen at the scene at the time the murder was going on. So that would make sense 
so Cody was arrested that night, and then he's turned around and he's arrested the very next night up in Aroostook. Yeah. It's because mm-hmm. he's working for the DEA, so that was the cover story. He's being arrested. Yeah. Right. Probably never charged think, with anything. I think Michael's name was given to, to Percy Sargent because by the t- when he got to the jail, he was hopping mad at Michael. Who do you think and gave him the- that, that name? I'm sorry. Who, who do you think gave him the name Michael? Someone... Someone that did the arresting that night. So an officer. Mm-hmm. To take the blame off Cody. That's what I'm trying to explain right. and try oh, to explain okay. about I'm Richard. Sorry. Yeah. The no, night I... that with him, they gave a different name so he wouldn't know who had turned him in. Right. So this is what uh, I'll tell you. There was something that. Uh, after the three men in 1985, June, were, uh, the indictments were dismissed. Uh, my daughter had come up from Mass and we had gone to Bar Harbor and we came home and my young son, Sean, came up to say there was a man called me, wanted to talk to me, left his telephone number. I called him back. He lived in Brewer. His name was Everett Cross. He told me he said the night, the morning of that fire, he said, I was up early that morning and I was listening to my police scanner. And he said there was a fire. A woman, it was a woman, he said, sent him the call to, he didn't know where, whether it was Brewer Police, Bangor Police, Sheriff's Department or where, but he could hear her. She said there was a fire. She saw two men walk and one man and a gunshot and she said watch for a red pinto heading to brewer that meant nothing to me until the trial uh for the uh percy sergeant and david dupre and this cody there was a trial in bangor i wasn't there that was in 81 but i got the transcripts later and in it, it tells about the drug sting and how they arrested Percy Sargent and impounded his car, which was a red Pinto. Yeah. They were driving um, it. The uh, what was the approximate time of that sting? What was in relation to the fire? The it. Uh, According to Percy Sargent, it was around 1 o'clock when they got to the county jail. 1 in the morning or 1 in the afternoon? 1 in the morning. The, the drugs, uh, Percy left that cottage around 11 o'clock for his drug deal. Okay. And the, it was at uh, Dupre's apartment in Burgoyne. Now, so by the time that the, they arrested them and took them into the county jail, it was around one o'clock. The fire, uh, old Mr. Ricker was called at 352. He lived right there. He only, t- uh, less than 10 minutes, he was on the scene. Right. So and not to sound like I'm being too confused by this, but a little bit. So the did they, did they post bail? Is that the idea is that they posted bail? Back up to the cottage. Percy didn't get out of jail until the 21st. He was arrested on the 18th, and it was the 21st of uh, February that a guy in the jail went his bail, and Lionel Cormier and Paul Paul picked him up at the county jail. Yeah, Percy Percy made a phone call to say, basically, get rid of Cochran. What the statement says, I made a call out to have Cochran taken care of. Yeah. I wanted to tell you, too, about Coleman. Coleman told us that he would, he was going to solve Michael's case for us not to get discouraged. But, but for some unknown reason, he left the detective division with the state police and went to work as a security guard for the uh, governor of Maine. No kidding. Yeah, he was. He worked for LePage, right? Yes. I think he ran into something he didn't like. I think he was a good man, and I think he saw something that wasn't mm-hmm. right. Right. 
It's too bad. I mean, I know oh. people get in law enforcement to, to do the right thing. There's so many of them that do a good job and put their lives on the line. But there's also a good number of them, I believe, are corrupt. You know, the power goes Absolutely. to their head. They know yeah. that they can get away with things because they are the police. Yeah. Well, the thing for me, too, with Detective Schumann and Pingho, they, they were part of the DEA. Something went wrong that night, and then they turned around. They're the investigators of Michael's murder. Right. Interesting. So they were they were part of the DEA, then all of a sudden yeah. become, they become homicide detectives. Well, the article in the Bangor Daily, the guy that was, uh, I forget what his position, what they called him, but he was the head of uh, the DEA. He resigned because he said he they couldn't the Main State Police was running it, and they they would read in the paper the next day about uh, a sting, and uh, they had no idea what was going on. It reeks of cover-up and corruption. There is. There's a cover-up in Mike's death. I know well, everything and, that and happened. And almost, almost assisting the other criminals, too, right? Like, it goes kind of beyond just cover-up, but it seems like, you know, the criminals were... were being helped in this situation too pretty pretty desperately well someone put a, a video on uh, YouTube and it's uh, there's quite a few for different of the murders in Maine and it's called just a dog in Maine yeah and on the one on Mike uh, they say something about the state of Maine knew who killed Mike. I can't tell you the exact words to that. But that the, that they knew, well, they knew from the very beginning when Pinkham told me that uh, Sergeant set the call and Cormier set the fire and then denied it. But then I came right around the information uh, that I found. That's exactly what, ha what happened. But you know, I know a lot of I know what happened but the one thing I don't know and probably will never know what went wrong what are they covering up what happened that they couldn't investigate Mike's murder right it was he was a human being he was a person he was my son yeah did he deserve uh, I know that they would like to say awful things about him and they did it come out in the paper that uh, Tom Goodwin the AG on the case suspected that Mike was uh, involved in uh, robbing drug dealers that's a lie mm -hmm. why don't you go take care of the ones that actually were robbing drug dealers right they didn't the state didn't take care that uh Coleman, when he uh, was investigating Cormier, that was not in the federal court. That wasn't in the state court. While Cormier was bragging about killing Michael, the AG at the time, I got a letter from him, George Mitchell tried to help me, and he wrote to George and said, I got a copy of the letter that they had looked at Cormier and Paul Pollard, and they are... Uh, they are not involved in uh, Michael Carpenter's death. Yeah, I read that. That's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cormier's bragging that he killed him in the AG's office, saying he didn't. They have the AG's office defending someone. Why? Why? I don't, I don't get it. No. No. No, it's, uh, it's very, uh, extensive they just went on for years uh, you know but I would like to have before I die I would like to have had there's no such a thing as closure that I hear a lot of people say they don't want closure there'll never be closure mm -hmm. but at least there would be some justice for what was done to Michael yeah that's what it's all about, right? Just, yeah, I mean, it's it's right. awful. It's awful what happened, but it should be justice. 
they should be. I think about those six days from the 18th to the 24th every year, those six days. When the 25th comes, it's like away cliffs. That he was left laying there under that pile of rubble. Right, and, and, and that, that kind of says it all, right, is it's almost like he wasn't even treated like a human. You know? that's, and, that's, that's the way I feel. And, and even this case, like at least treat him like a human, no matter what his past might have been. That's you right. know, he didn't that's right. he didn't hurt anybody. So at least at least give him the dignity of of, of everyone else. Yes. One one quick question I have is, so his girlfriend said she witnessed him uh, being hit over the head. No, she didn't say she witnessed. Said the police told her that. Oh okay. So she had left before that all supposedly happened. So when did she realize that he was missing? Was she looking really for him? I really don't know because she didn't tell me. She, she knew, but she didn't come tell me. I called her on the 24th, the day they found Mike, and told her I was going to Caribou and wanted to know if she could take care of Mike's dog. And she did say that she couldn't find Michael. But she didn't say it's been days, or she didn't sound, uh, you know, like distressed or whatever. I think she, she knew was... that Michael had been living there, though, right? Pardon? She knew that Michael had been living at that cottage, though, didn't she? Well, she'd been there with him. She left him just right. a couple hours before that. But didn't know where to find him. It seems weird that a cabin that you're staying in burns to the ground. Can't find your boyfriend, but you're not worried. Well, Old Ricker said that he drove in there during those six days that they sent him to Bangor. He would stop in there at night on his way back to Blue Hill. He saw her car sitting there one night. Hmm. And uh, in Percy Sargent's conversation with his brother, he said she came to the jail and asked Michael was. But we did her deposition, and I was told before I did it, that she wasn't going to say anything. Hmm. And I said, I didn't care. I want, I want it anyhow. I could sit in on the depositions, but you can't say anything. But she came with an attorney, and she remembered nothing. She, at one time, said she didn't, she didn't know Michael was dead. What in the world? So let me ask you this. Do you think she was saying it... Uh because she was involved, or do you think she was saying it because she was scared that something would happen to her? I think she was scared. I think Schumann shut her up. Yeah. But I think she had a hard time about it because during her deposition, she told that her mother was scared uh, that she was going to uh, have a breakdown or something uh, that she was having a hard time so apparently she was having a hard time over it but I didn't know it because once Michael was gone she wouldn't talk to us she closed us out after Ricker found Mike's body and those two men Cormier and Sergeant ended up at the uh, at the murder site the three of them fled the state of Maine mm. and they took Paul Pollard to Rhode Island to his girlfriend Karen Murray she never was interviewed. After the after uh, Paul Pollard and Cormier left the murder scene that morning, they went to the sergeant's residence in Winterport. And Richard told me and Percy told me. That's when he was putting everything on Cormier and Pollard. They came to the sergeant residence and told them that there, there was the fire in Dedham and they'll be finding Michael's body. And the police never talked to the sergeants. They never talked to Paul Pollard's. They call him his father. He's not his father. But he brought him up. Uh, Owen Pollard. They never. He, Paul, when they left him on the state, he called this Owen Pollard and he said, A man died and I'm scared. He said, Come back to the state of Maine and we'll take care of it. He was the director of vocational rehabilitation in the state of Maine and uh, Paul came back to Maine and through Owen he cleaned him up he he 
alcoholism with our drug uh, was he was addicted to drugs mm -hmm. and that was one of the requirements under folk rehab to get you into school they cleaned him up and sent him to school in uh, Massachusetts the second uh, that was in 82 the fall of 82 he had to leave and was admitted to Seton Hospital in Waterville for drug addiction they had to dry him out before he could go back to school tell me what tell me what you did and tell me why tell me why you killed him after that happened and I knew it was a fire and he burned up but I still didn't know the full thing of it I'd have nightmares I would flee bed hit a wall dresser or something with my heart pounding so hard oh man to myself I was scared my heart would stop I couldn't die I had another son I had to take care of mm -hmm. my heart breaks for you I'm so sorry you had to go through this there was no need of going through it why these men were dangerous men you read what they say in Portland what the judge told us said to him you're a predator he told him what he was and he said you've said that you uh, spent most of your life in prison and he said that's true you'll probably die in prison I'll tell you this and it's uh, there was things with Coleman that was very satisfying I wasn't outside the courtroom during a break, but my oldest son was. There was a detective from the Bangor Police Department and De Detective Coleman, and they were talking, and my son was listening. And they told about the day they arrested Cormier in Massachusetts. He was living with, a, his girlfriend was a nurse, and she had him on a donor uh, list in a hospital. I think the day he, they arrested him, he was to be admitted to the hospital that day for a uh, transplant. Oh, no kidding. And they said he was wild when they arrested him. So justice and, was served. And Gary said they laughed when they told it. Good. There's no, still good Coleman, people out there. Yeah, no, Coleman was a good man. Yeah. Is there anything else you can think of you want to mentioned to us uh, no, I know I don't think why don't you so. tell us about your website can you tell us what, where we can find that it's just a murder of Mike Cochran so www.murderofmikecochran.com yes. yes lots yes. of information on there yeah there's a ton the only thing I have left is my out of it all the desperation it drove me to find out what happened to him. I never stopped trying to find out what happened to him and why. But the thing I'm left with is anger. I'm angry at the state of Maine. I would like to expose them for how they treated me and how they treated my son. Mm-hmm. I really do hope that you find justice out of this, I do. I don't think I will. I really don't think I will because the last that I heard from the AG's office was that they they had lost what they needed because I, even the death certificate for Mike at the bottom of how this occurred or whatever, trapped in a house fire. So they didn't even call it murder there. No, no, trapped the house fire. <clears throat> and they told me that they recommended a cremation. Like I said, uh, Charlie uh, worked uh, with Daryl, and he worked at Clark and Mitchell, and he was the one that pretty much advised us as an, an a cremation because of the condition. So the 26th of February there, uh, there was a cremation I have a, a permit from the uh, crematory uh, that says uh, 
there's no further judicial inquiry needed. There's a little more than that, but that that there was no need for further inquiry about this death. Right, no need to preserve the body, just go ahead and cremate it. Well, no more investigation. They didn't need to investigate it any further. No ju uh, judicial inquiry uh, needed. Right. Right from the very beginning. And then I spoke with someone there at the crematory and they told me that when a case is not solved, that they're not permitted to before they can cremate the body. Mm. The, the, you can't cremate a body while, uh, until you know if, it, like, Mike was murdered. Right. They had all the answers they wanted. Yes. Yeah. But I don't, I think those people at the crematory, they were going by the information they were told. Right, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for for taking the time to talk to us about this. Yes, and I thank you for doing it. Oh, you're very welcome. Yes, and and if if you get any more information, just let us know, and we'll we'll put it out there for people. Okay, that would be that would be good. I appreciate that. We'd like to thank Leola for taking the time to share her story with us tonight and express how heartwarming it is to see how strong she's been fighting for her son's justice for all these years. If you're interested in purchasing Leola's book, A Main Murder, you can pick it up on Amazon or other places where books are sold. If you have more information about tonight's case, contact the Maine State Police at 1-800-452-4664. Or reach out to us on our Facebook page at Locating the Lost. You can also leave us a voice message on Anchor FM. The link can also be found on our Facebook page. Thanks for tuning in. Five-year-old Taylor, Taylor Williams led investigators to Alabama this week. So we have some breaking news from Florida. An arrest has been made. Tonight, in after years of agony, a glimmer of hope for the family. Investigators spent hours searching through this house off Pennsylvania Avenue. What could be a major development in the search for missing Alabama teenager. Tonight, a stunning twist in the search for Taylor. Somebody out there knows something. They want to lay him to rest their way.